Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Hope you've enjoyed your Easter weekend. Oh, McDevitt and Ken Early here resisting the temptation to take the Bank Holiday Monday off with most of the rest of the country because there are just too many spectacular goals to talk about on today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast, Ken. And there are almost too many goals, I'm going to say. Too many great goals, that is. Yeah. But people started overcomplicating matters when it came to choosing the best one of the weekend. If you score, as far as I'm concerned, if you score from your own half... That's automatically the best goal. Oh, automatically the best. There's no, there's no goal that can be better unless it's scored from further back in somebody's own half. It's just, it's just incomparable. But, the, but by the time Match Day 2 came out last night, their pundits seemed to think it was too obvious to go for that one as the best strike. So Jermaine Gina said Bobby Zamora's lob was good. Mm-hmm. Danny Murphy inexplicably went for Alexis San- Sanchez's bullet. Which was great, but I would have said Charlie, Ad- Charlie Adams was 40 yards further out and yeah. hit, hit with equal venom. So I'm going when, to go with that. When you score from 66 yards against Thibaut Courtois, um, that's the best goal of the weekend. It, it is one of the best of those types of goals I've ever seen. I mean, there's been a few, obviously, in the Premier League that you can think of. You can think of Beckham's one being the kind of most famous. Shabby uh, Alonso had one against Newcastle, hit from a similar kind of distance as, as Charlie Adam, but the goalkeeper kind of ruined it by falling over backwards. You know, the ball sort of went in over this prone uh, goalkeeper. Um, there was the uh, Wayne Rooney got one against West Ham, Luis Suarez against Norwich. They were both inside the opposing half, though, you know, from a long way out. But so for me, for me, own Charlie Adam. Has uh, has scored the best of luck. So the, yeah. I mean, Courtois is, is such a good goalkeeper. Um, he he actually did get a touch on the ball. Well, that's what I enjoyed about it almost as much as the strike itself was Courtois' sprint back to goals. It's mm. so rare you you see that scenario develop where a goalkeeper is sprinting back towards his own goals and then diving at full stretch, six foot five, whatever he is, to try to get a hand on it, which he did. But it was just such an, uh, an unbelievable strike. He scored a few of them in Scotland, Ken. So they were saying. 
So they're saying, I mean, he, he does like to try it. I mean, he's a guy who can hit a ball very sweetly, Charlie Adam. I mean, it's the reason why he's got like such a lucrative playing career because in some of the other aspects of the game, he's not really outstanding. No, he's not your stereotypical Premier League midfielder of 2015. No, he he's not a machine. Athletically, he's not a machine. No, for no, he's not. But he does, he has always been able to hit the ball well with that left foot. And um, yeah, that was his crowning glory, I suppose. Time for Kennedy's report on sport. So I guess um, we should really start with the, um, actually the game yesterday, uh, win for Sunderland um, at Newcastle. This is the golden age for Sunderland against Newcastle. They just It's the best run they've ever had against them in their history. And I wonder if it would be enough just to win that game every year, to win those two games against Newcastle every year and essentially finish one place above relegation. Would that be enough forever? Oh, oh yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I would say almost certainly. Um, Sackpardew.com uh, has now essentially repurposed itself as, as Ashley Out. Uh, they're launching a Mike Ashley. One down, one to go is their philosophy. Now, it has to be noted that sacking Pardew hasn't really improved Newcastle's position at all. Are we able to say at this point that, in fact, Alan Pardew, uh, maybe culturally not the best possible fit with, the, with the Newcastle as a club and uh, as a region, but was he really the problem? Was he really the problem? I mean, I know SackParju.com had done some amazing work in collecting uh, all of Alan Pardew's um, managerial excuses, oh, you know, yeah, which was yeah. an amazing document. But I, I felt it was less—it was less an indictment of Alan Pardew as more, more, and more kind of indictment of what you have to do when you're when you're a Premier League manager managing a team that doesn't win that often, <laughs> you know? And you've got this uncomfortable situation where every word uh, that comes out of your mouth is recorded for posterity. And, you know, your words on the internet are going to probably outlive you. So everything that you, that you say, whereas before, you know, 20, 30 years ago, Alan Pardew giving these little post-match interviews would have been able to say, yeah, you know, well, come up with some of this... You know, in in retrospect, somewhat ludicrous excuses he came up with, such as our fans have got got a bit too excited. <laughs> it's very difficult when the fans get that excited, you know that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, whereas now he says it, and it's all there, and you can kind of go through his reaction to each each match and pick out the most uh, contradictory and the and the most um, uh, the sort of silliest uh, excuses. Um, very few Newcastle managers ever look as though they're enjoying the job. Uh, I must say. Maybe well, that's largely because the fans' expectations are never met. I mean, Kevin Keegan was the last person to come close to it. Bobby Robson maybe for a period. But Graeme Souness, another guy, didn't look like he was enjoying himself there. No. And I get the sense, even when it was going well for Pardew, he, I think he knew he was always about two or three games away from getting a lot of abuse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I think Robson's the only one who's managed to do it. But that's only because Bobby Robson managed to, I mean, uh, look like he's enjoying it. Mm. But Bobby Robson is actually going through hell. For most of that, it was just that he he perfected this kind of art of this almost Christ-like sort of uh, inner glow that he just turned to the world because you know a lifetime of experience had taught him that that was just the best way to uh, to be. You know, turn the other cheek, yeah. Sort of try and rise above it. Try and uh, be a figure that you know radiates uh, grace and positive feeling, and ultimately, well, not in the case of Freddie Shepherd who sacked him. But but most people, most people will respond to that. Um, 
I mean, poor old John Carver. I remember we talked to Jonathan Wilson a while ago. And we will talk to him a bit later on. I think he was at this game as he, as he was at the Emirates for Arsenal's uh, 4-1 destruction of, of Liverpool. Um, so we'll talk to him about the two matches. But he said uh, he compared at the time uh, John Carver to Harry Kane, the two men who look like they're having most fun in English football at this, at this moment. And this was just after... John Carver, uh, Newcastle had played away to, to Chelsea. Jose Mourinho and Carver were buddying up on the touchline. And I think the ball hit Carver on the arse or something, wasn't it? <laughs> or maybe Mourinho fell over. Something happened. A ball struck an arse. Someone fell on the arse. And John Carver was absolutely delighted with himself. Now weighed down by care. He, f- he feels that this defeat to Sunderland is going to uh, define his spell in charge. Uh, I will suffer for a few weeks, months, possibly years, says Carver. Uh, really, is I mean, is it is that fair? Is it right that you know, essentially, a placeholder, an interim manager, is going to be weighed down for years with the memory of this defeat? Apparently, that's the way. Well, particularly if he is living living local, as they say again. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I think he is. I would imagine he probably will be. But you know, are people really going to go up to John Carver and say, "You, you're the guy who lost one nil to Dick Advocate Sunderland"? Probably on the yes. day when Tim Krul shamed uh, shamed Newcastle United by uh, by acknowledging the quality of Jermaine Defoe's. Well, goal. the same Newcastle fans who feel it was a crime for Tim Krul to acknowledge the quality of that goal would probably be the people who would go up to John Carver and. 15 years' time and remind him about this defeat. Yeah, I mean, if there are, I mean, we should, I suppose we should point out, I mean, we're, you know, we're assuming Newcastle, there's some Newcastle fans annoyed by it, but it was, seemed to be mainly Jamie Carragher who was annoyed by it. Uh, he's not a Newcastle fan. He was commenting on the game uh, and says, uh, I wouldn't want to see one of my own team do it. It's not good sportsmanship. It is good sportsmanship. It's literally the definition of good sportsmanship. Absolutely. Congratulating another sportsman on a great piece of play, even though that was uh, not beneficial to your own team yeah um, yeah and that's that's absolutely sportsmanship. he says someone without passion for the game might say it is good sportsmanship that is when you play a derby game you don't just play in the day there's a build up in the week everyone's on edge you build yourself into a frenzy where you despise the opposition at the end of the game you shake hands with everyone you wouldn't smile um, I don't I don't see where Carragher's coming from here at all it's not as though for instance uh, one of his famous kind of derby type games um, one of the Manchester United players at Anfield at the time when he scored the two own goals. I think the last time Liverpool had conceded three first-half goals in the Premier League was was that day when Jamie Carragher scored two of them. And it's not as though, you know, Mikel Silvestre or Massimo Taibi that day had had acknowledged Jamie Carragher's contribution to the first half in the tunnel. That would have been bad sportsmanship. <laughs> that would have been real bad sportsmanship. Uh, but on this occasion, it seemed to be... Uh, anyway, we'll talk a bit more about that um, later on. Um, it's difficult, um, I suppose, to to accept. I mean, one of the things that's been dominating uh, the last few days is, is this Raheem Sterling thing. We we um, we had talked about it with Richie on Thursday, yeah. Um, and this spectre of a of a team of a player, a much uh, beloved player, leaving and then coming back to punish you um, is always a painful thing for football fans have to accept and Dor- Borussia Dortmund fans have really had to put up with quite a lot of this over the last while because they're it's not as though they just lose their best players they lose their best players to their main rivals and uh, Mario Götze came back and, and scored the winner against them last season and this season 
Robert Lewandowski, who I remember had already scored against Dortmund, scored the, what I think was the winner. It was a 2-1, wasn't it? Yeah. So Lewandowski scored the winner in the game in Munich and did it again uh, on his return to Dortmund. Obviously didn't celebrate the goal. No, allowed his body to turn rigid. Yeah, he sagged down. It was real. It was he was a pathetic spectacle, as the Bayern players uh, leapt upon him uh, in their in their happiness. Um, so a painful defeat for Borussia Dortmund. Jurgen Klopp was then asked to go down and do his post match interview, and it's a, it's a kind of a BT Sport style setup. So the interview is there where you're standing at one of those little tables with you know a couple of other lads pitch side pitch side. In this case, right in front of the Bayern fans who are uh, laughing, screaming, uh, calling him a sausage. Uh, you know, it's one of the most cutting things you can say. Klopp, you are a sausage. Uh, it's a famous German insult, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, to call someone a sausage is to suggest they're not at the top of their game. Um, I've got to say, it's a fantastic idea from Sky to interview me here and give these Bayern supporters every opportunity to do what they want, <laughs> says Klopp. During the interview. But I guess this is just something else I've got to stomach. Uh, and this was, you know, he really is. I mean, it's grim when you watch. I mean, Lothar Matthias had been had been on Sky, and he suggested that Hummels had essentially just watched Lewandowski score this goal. Um, he just stood there, just stopped moving and stood there. I said, as though implying that Hummels didn't really care. Um, no, Lothar, he didn't just stand still. He could have tried to chase after him to have an alibi, but he knew he couldn't make it. He falls over. He's never going to catch up with Levy then. Um, now. The Hummels thing was a bit pointed from Matthias because it's kind of becoming increasingly clear that Mats Hummels is playing his last few games now for Dortmund. He is going to join this prior tradition they have of players who go on to bigger and better things. Uh, this is like less than a year after. I remember the German Cup final last year. Again, uh, Bayern beat Dortmund. That would have been Lewandowski's last game for Dortmund. And um, he he you know put up on, I think, his Instagram. Then the next day, oh, you know, I'm not... I'm not leaving here until we get a title. This is it, you know. I, I don't know which title it's going to be next year, but we are going to win a title. You know, this is what he's saying. Hasn't really worked out that way. They've just been terrible all season. And he personally hasn't been great either. Um, now doing an interview last week, kind of this is like the German version of the Sterling thing. Although it's a little bit different. You know, Hummels is more established, has won a couple of titles with Dortmund is 26, as opposed to, you know, uh, 20, hasn't won anything. Um it just uh, it doesn't mean I'm leaving. It just means I'm reflecting. This is what he's saying about the interview that he'd done. The interview essentially was, as matters stand, I think about what's good for me and what I want to do. Everyone knows I very much like it here in Dortmund, but I also want us to have a powerful squad and a powerful approach. I've held many talks in recent weeks which are relevant for me and which will form my general view. But I have not made a decision regarding my future. And even if I had, it doesn't necessarily mean it can be turned into reality. Um, Manchester United is where this guy is going to be playing next season. Um, well, at least it's not Bayern Munich <laughs> for the Dortmund fans. <laughs> they seem to have this issue. The, the, what I feel sorry for, one of the reasons I feel sorry for Dortmund in this situation, for their supporters, is that it's not just as though there's this sudden heartbreaking snatching of one of their star players by another club, usually Bayern Munich. It's that oftentimes there seems to be the season where everyone knows it's going to happen. Either it's been confirmed, I think, as the case was with Lewandowski, mm. or there are fairly strong hints all season. So they've got an entire year of watching this player who they know is going to be gone at the end of the season, oftentimes they're their biggest rivals. Yeah. Um, it's a tough situation. Well, they have, they have had it a couple of different ways as well. I mean, the, there was the Götze thing just came totally out of the blue. Oh, they did get uh, that one out of the blue. Just, yeah. I mean, just as they were coming up on the, you know, it, it looked as though they were 
they were headed for a possible Champions League final against Bayern. And just to just on the, out of the blue, it was we're gonna go, we're gonna buy. We've agreed to buy Goethe. Uh So that was that maybe, was a bit of a shock. Yeah, maybe that's maybe the shock is worse actually. The shock, and then the, the Lewandowski one was, as you said, a a, a long or pre range thing. Eventually, he went on a free. This one seems to be a dragged out one. Probably it's better when you know it's going to happen. You can you have more time to reconcile yourself to it. Either way, it's not it's not great. Um, so it could be Phil Jones and Matt Hummels. Providing a center, a central defensive duo of contrasting styles, um, playing next season for Manchester United, who are, um, according to Louvenal, all set to play Manchester City. Uh, we're winning five games in a row. Um, if City lose points, their match in hand is tonight against uh, Crystal Palace. City's match in hand. When they, if they lose points or if it's a draw, then we're even. They have a better goal difference, so they have to lose. Then we're better than City. The next game is the decisive game. You have to win these kinds of matches. This is Van Hal, very pleased with how things are going. Very pleased with Ander Herrera, who has uh, hit some great form lately um, and is uh, statistically one of the best midfielders in the league at the moment. Five goals, 90% passes, um, just doing everything extremely well all around. Mm. Um, so it's kind of after a weird season for Manchester United when they didn't kind of hit top form at very many stages. They're kind of grinding their way relentlessly into a very good position. No, yeah, there've been very few games where you'd have said they've played incredibly well. Uh, certainly, the the Liverpool game might have been one, but yet they are up there. What are they? Sixty-two points now. One, mm. one point behind Arsenal. They've got a decent shot at. Well, they're going to stay. They're going to be in the top four anyway, which was the aim. So, yeah, I mean, they're going to be in the top four because it seems as though Liverpool have have uh, have collapsed. And uh, Brendan Rodgers already has done a press conference today because he uh, they're going to be playing against Blackburn um, in the FA Cup uh, quarterfinal replay, and they're going to do so without Martin Skirtle, who's obviously suspended, and Emery Chan, who got himself sent off in the last couple of minutes at the Emirates as Arsenal rang, ran uh, rings around Liverpool. Uh, and it's actually the biggest defeat, the biggest win that Arsenal have had against Liverpool in the league in the in the Arsene Wenger era, which is incredible when you consider um, the quality of some of those Arsenal teams. Um, they did beat them 3-0 a couple of times, and they beat them 6-3 at Anfield in a, in a cup match between a couple of kind of reserve-type teams. But 4-1 is their, is their best win in the league since Arsene Wenger took over against Liverpool. Um, uh, now, Brendan Rodgers had the opportunity to not talk so much about it as a result of this whole thing that had happened with Sterling. And most of the questions he was asked after it revolved around Sterling and the destabilising influence of, of Sterling's agent and so on. Um, they then went back up to, to Merseyside and apparently had a team meeting, which some of the papers reported, oh, acrimonious team meeting, as Rogers accuses players of not playing for him. He now says that's totally made up. Uh, essentially, this is just a normal meeting, the kind of which they're always having after uh, bad uh, defeats. Um, but it's talked a little bit about how difficult it is to hang on to players or to sign top players when you're not in the Champions League. Liverpool is a phenomenal club players want to play for, but of course players want to play at the top level. And if you're not in the Champions League, it makes it difficult for you, says Rogers. I mean, could he almost be saying more helpful things from the point of view of Raheem Sterling's agent? Yeah. I mean, he, he did criticise the agent a good bit. Uh, after the game on Saturday, which is always an easy thing for a manager to do, I think you know, with an agent, nobody likes the agent. He's he can always be blamed. You can blame everything on him. It's an easy thing for everybody to do. In a way, the footballer can hide behind the agent to a certain extent. The club can 
slag off the agent, the manager can slag off the agent, who sometimes deserve the slagging, it's probably fair to say, not always. I think so. Um, but, you know, in this instance, I'm not, I'm not really sure. But, you know, he's talking about, it's, you know, it's difficult, blah, blah, difficult, talking about all the problems they have and so on. I mean, I don't know um, where, where they really go from here. It, is, it looks as though Rogers might have to fire up the toaster again because this is going to require a similar type of... Um, fire up the toaster? The toaster that fueled his um, his uh, rejigging of the his when he redrew the tactical um, master plan, um, he stayed up late with tea and toast, redid, and eventually he he thought his way to the solution in his office. I think was it uh, in his office. So uh, he's got a toaster in his occasionally office. Occasionally speaking to his occasionally speaking to his staff. Well, I mean, uh, maybe the toaster's outside. It's just, it's just a strange implement to have in the manager's office. Do you think? Big old toaster. Maybe he's got an adjoining kitchenette like Ed Miliband. You know, he's got a microwave, a toaster. Foreman grill in there. Yeah, foreman, exactly. It doesn't take much cleaning. You can do up little sandwiches or whatnot. Um, but, you know, he it's obviously, it's its kind of gone pear-shaped. I mean, the, the Sterling thing still continues to, to loom over everything. Sterling hasn't really said a great deal, obviously, since his 27-minute uh <laughs> nothing else to say. Sterling has nothing else to say. He did. His most recent uh, tweet, if you look at it, is, um, if you want to know me, listen to this song. Tells you everything about me. Uh, I thought, hello. Fairy Cross the Mersey or something like that? Uh, no, actually. It's uh, Champion by Chipmunk featuring Chris Brown. And so in this song, you might remember it. Owen, it was a kind of a minor hit in 2010. Uh, obviously made a, made a big impact on little Raheem Sterling at that time. Um, so essentially, Chipmunk starts off by pouring scorn on the fools who, who doubted him. It's a common trope, I think, in, in, uh, the in haters, this type yeah. of song. Yeah, they, I remember when they told me I wouldn't be famous. Now my dream and reality is simultaneous. <laughs> so he's, good rap. So as a result of, as a result of the, um, the, these people, the, these skeptics, uh, these critics, he has, he's managed to develop this ethic of relentless self-improvement and now he's a champion um, he's not satisfied he says and there's a higher level than the top you gotta make more don't make do with what you got so get it in go Sonny not everybody gets a second chance at, at getting money or even getting lucky so you gotta feel the hunger in your tummy right so you can see there that he's not prepared to rest on his laurels right he's, he's a lot of people would say he's already reached the top but he's not yet satisfied he's saying there's actually more. And what's more, I've got to strike while the iron is hot because not everybody gets a second chance. Mm -hmm. So I've got to get out there. Chris Brown then comes in and he also has a few words for the critics. Uh, he says, I'm always pushing myself to the limit, making sure I stay ahead. You made me who I am from the words you said. Which is to say, when the, when the critics were, were talking him down, he used that as fuel, you see. Mm. Um... He said, uh, but he does admit that it sometimes gets to him. He says, I'd be lying if I said it ain't get to me. Chipmunk then says, they turn you into a bastard the moment you you rude. Attitude a little out of tune. So Raheem Sterling has found this out over the last week. You know, his uh, his rudeness in uh, apparently demanding more money than, than he's being offered or possibly even wanting to move to a, you know, bigger squad is... Um, has caused him some some problems, but it all comes back. It all comes back to one thing, and that is the unconquerable self belief at the core of their being. Because although they're surrounded by P 
people who are always trying to do them down, people who are trying to make them out to be worse than they are. You know, Chris Brown has a few things in there about like how certain things happened, certain things happened in his own life, and a lot of people, after those certain things happened, wanted to see him take a fall. And look, it was difficult, but he came through it. It comes back to this sort of philosophy of uncompromising exceptionalism, which is some people have to learn, some people wait their turn, some people, but not me, I was born a champion. So this is uh, the song Raheem Sterling says tells you everything about him. Those rhymes got a little looser as it, as it progressed, I think. Well, you, you kind of have to hear, they kind of, it's not just rap, it's also sung, you know, they, they sure. you know, they, they, these guys are at the top of their game, Delivery oh, no, who, am I, who am I to question? I don't have a flow to rival uh, Chipmunk or uh, Chip, as he now is, or uh, or Chris Brown. So I'm not even going to try. But, you know, that's that's Raheem. I mean, I think back, you know, Ian Rush. Ian Rush, what was his, 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 his favourite song? If you find it on the internet, he claims that his favourite song is Scouser Tommy. Uh, Scouser Tommy, a, a song that the you know Liverpool supporters sing in every game. Remember, Ian Rush still left Liverpool, and that was when they were when they actually were really good. But, you know, Raheem Sterling is not a man for standing in line, waiting his turn. He's saying, look, I'm here, I've arrived, I'm going to get even better. Either you can come with me or I'm going to go and do it somewhere else. That's the end of Kennedy's Report on Sport. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes I'm talking about, on yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Jonathan Wilson was at the Emirates on Saturday. Jonathan Arsenal suddenly look absolutely brilliant again I mean I, I don't know what you put this down to in recent times is, is this just the first time they've had all, had all their big names putting their weight at the same time yeah I think that's probably true I mean Arsene Wenger referred to it on, on Saturday um, that he said that you know he had three or four big players out at the start of the season and that he talked about a World Cup hangover as well and I'm not sure whether that would necessarily affect Arsenal more than other big teams um, but I mean they, they must look back at that start they had when I think they won what two of the first eight games uh, I think they only lost one of them, but I mean, five, I think it was five draws in that first eight games. And I must think, you know, if they only turned two of those into, into wins, then, you know, we really would have a title race now rather than this sort of slightly fake title race everybody's trying to persuade themselves is, is going on. Yeah. I mean, is there, Brendan Rogers after this game talked about how it's easy to play when you're 3 0 down. Is there a bit of that? Going on with Arsenal's season in the in the sort of the grand scale, they've they've kind of gone on this amazing run, but Chelsea had already disappeared over the horizon. I think that's very true, and I think it's not just this season. I think that's characterised Arsenal. Well, I mean, for for several seasons, they're, they're a very good side when hope is lost. It's a strange psychological thing they seem to have that. Yeah, Wenger repeatedly talks about mental strength and about their ability to to bounce back, and in in one sense, he, he's he's right. But on, on the other hand, they never quite do when it matters. They're very good at doing it when it doesn't matter. So, you, I mean, you think back to you know, the the games against Bayern when they've the tie's been lost and they've then produced a great performance in the second leg. You could even say against Monaco this season that when the pressure was actually on, they lost. 
and then the pressure's off because they could go to Monaco and it's you know it's a free hit effectively. If they get beat there, nobody really cares. The damage is done, and they produce a good performance and win two 0 That's not quite enough. Even the Stoke game, which was you sort of thought of as being a crisis point, as soon as they get to three 0 down at half time, they're able in the second half with with the pressure off to come back. So that that does seem to be a uh, a very Arsenal trait that. Yeah, other teams have false dawns. They seem to have false twilights. So every time it seems it, you know that they've they've reached a reached a tipping point of badness, they they are able to come back. But the problem is they they almost seem to need that that you know, to to be without hope to to produce their best. And think- the result of that is they keep finishing in the top four, they keep on producing these sort of what can be passed off as heroic defeats, and they never actually do anything. Yeah, I mean, I think we can we can you know looking at Arsenal now they. They look almost certain to be in the top four, and you'd have to say they're favourites to win the FA Cup. Um, when you look at the the rest of the teams that are still involved, um, that will be a, a good season, I think. Um, for us, I mean, it's the same as last season, I suppose, but uh, maintaining a certain level of success. I wonder though if you think they they are coming closer to a tipping point um, where they can finally actually become a serious challenger next season. I mean, I know Mourinho is always. He's he's always seeking to undermine Wenger with everything he says about him. But you know, he said a few weeks back on goals on Sunday. I'm just surprised they're not actually challenging us for the title. I mean, looking at them uh, on Saturday and looking at them over the last few weeks, you can see a team emerging that is going to challenge. In my in my opinion, this uh, uh, you know you've got players like Sanchez and and Ozil who have been, who are you know top players Arsenal have brought in in the, in the last couple of years that hadn't happened in the few years previous to that. Is 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 there maybe a change, a change in the essential character of the team happening here? Or are we talking in terms of false stones again? Um, I mean, possibly, but uh, the problem is, I, I've, I've thought this so often before about Arsenal. They, you know, their, their sort of spring surge means you always finish the season thinking, well, yeah, maybe next season they could do it. And then, you know, in recent years they they brought in a big player or two, and you start the season with with this sort of sense of optimism for them. I mean, I think there are. There are encouraging signs that possibly are, are more fundamental than, than just a patch of good form. I think the fact they do have Sanchez and Edsel, two you know, very, very high-class players, who are now both playing together and they seem to have found an understanding and both played very, very well on Saturday. Um, the, 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 the fact they, they, they can attract that kind of player and they do have the budget to, to sign that kind of player, that, that has got to be positive. I, I think the front half of the team... Not just from an attacking point of view, but also from where they they press, probably looks better than Arsenal have looked for. I don't know, ten years maybe, eight, eight years. Um, and I think the pressing has been a thing that's really let them down. Oh, yeah, certainly when when matched against the the, the the very best over the last few years. But their pressing was was excellent. I mean, certainly yeah, the way Liverpool sort of panicked in that first ten fifteen minutes in the face of of a ferocity of Arsenal's pressing. So that's not an Arsenal way of playing, or hasn't been. So I think that's a positive. You, you may question whether Giroud is quite good enough as a centre-forward. 18 goals uh, in 28 games isn't, isn't yeah, bad. Yeah, but it's, ten, it's, it's you know, he's very good against when Arsenal are playing well. I think the problem is things like the Monaco game. Uh, it's, it's a bit like the Michael Carrick problem, that every now and again he has a disastrous performance against a really big side that makes you, you just a little bit of doubt there. That... Yeah, you know, I, I think that question mark is still there about Giroud. I'm not, I'm not writing him off completely, but I think there is a question mark. I think there's still issues at the back of the side um, that I think they need more than just Cochrane at the back of midfield. Um, and even if Arteta comes back in alongside him, is that is that really solid enough? 
Uh, you worry generally, I think, still about that central defence if teams get a run at them. So there's a couple of issues there. But I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it's generally positive. And of course, this season they they may well end up, end up finishing second, which would be, um, uh, yeah, although nothing in terms of trophies. I think psychologically, that's actually significant. Well, not just psychologically, it is significantly better than than finishing fourth. There were uh, yeah, there were a couple of. Um our big articles about Brendan Rodgers who now seems to have given up on finishing fourth a couple of weeks ago when they were uh, when second looked like it might be a possibility for them but these articles focused on the tactical changes that he made to the team uh, in the wake of their stumbles and their really bad form earlier on in the season ha- what's happened since then they've lost a couple of big games what's happened to that tactical plan do you think? Well, I don't think it's anything to do with the tactical plan necessarily. I mean, maybe sides have started to work it out that you know, I think one of the one of the great strengths of that three four two one was that it posed other teams' problems they weren't used to solving. You play Manchester United and Arsenal, and they've had, what, four months to look at it, and they've worked out a way of playing against it. Uh, also, I think I think even before the United game, um, the game away at Swansea, maybe even at times in the game at home against Burnley after that, there was signs of fatigue that, yeah, they'd been on that great run, and, and the energy of that had sustained them. But you can't expect a team that's lost six of its first twelve games to be able to. to I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult for them to maintain that sort of charge over a six-month period. The fact they were able to do it over four months is is extraordinary. I mean, if at the beginning of December you'd said Liverpool will, in at the end of March, be in a battle for the top four, Liverpool fans would have taken that. The fact they then lost two key games, I, you know, I, I think the more significant thing is how well they played in the four months and, and how badly they played in the first part of the season. The last two games, I think, is yeah, it's just a, a culmination of, of, of uh, you know the end of that run. And I think once they'd lost to United, you could see maybe a little bit of the energy and the enthusiasm had gone out of them. That um, that euphoria almost had carried them through as it did last season. Uh, that had gone, and I think there's a couple of other things have, have played into that. Notably, the the issue of Raheem Sterling and his his contract negotiations. I thought it was significant that after the game on on Saturday, as, as the players left the field, Sterling pretty much walked off alone. There's nobody going over to him. And you know, normally you see players sort of shaking hands, kind of patting each other on the back. And well, the Liverpool players were in twos and threes. Sterling was was by himself. Now that might be coincidence, but it, it felt like there was something more more significant there. That maybe people in the squad are wondering whether he's he's destabilised things with with that interview and, and um, you know the ongoing controversy. Well, that's in, that's an interesting point you raise, uh, Jonathan, because that's certainly something that was suggested to Brendan Rodgers that he was being destabilised by other forces afterwards, which made it sound very sinister. <laughs> almost as though he was Other like forces. in charge of South African intelligence during the total onslaught of Moscow in the 1980s. You know, this is the kind of language that they were using. But uh, you think that the other the other Liverpool players might also be looking at Sterling and thinking, well, hang on, this is, I feel destabilised uh, by by what you've done uh, going on the BBC. Do you think players really, really would react that way? Surely all those players can see what's going on there. It's just a question of um, he wants to be paid what he's worth. Up to a point, yeah, but I can also see how players would be frustrated at the way it's played out now. Whether that's whether that's Sterling's fault, whether it's his agent's fault, whether it's club's fault, the club's fault, yeah, you can argue about that. But it's not a healthy thing with six weeks of a season to go for all the attention to be on. Is this great young player still going to be at the club? Um, and, and for him to speak about being flattered uh, about an offer from Arsenal. A few days before they they play Arsenal, yeah, I, I, that that just 
it, it puts a doubt in your mind as to, well, hang on, what's, what's his motivation here? When he's playing against Arsenal, is he that committed to playing against them? Or is, is he actually thinking, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind playing here next season. This is quite a big stadium. This is nice. Um, so, and, and also, you know, there's, there's that, that other factor that by losing to Arsenal... They make it less likely that Liverpool get in the Champions League next season. That has got, as I mean, as Rogers admitted, it's harder to keep a player when you're not in the Champions League. Now, to lose Luis Suarez is one thing. You know, he is is clearly a bracket higher than Sterling at, at this stage. The fact that he 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 comes from a Hispanic culture, therefore Spain would be a the, the place he probably grew up dreaming of playing. Uh, to, you know, you can understand. Why why Spurs would leave? Plus all the controversies around around him. Yeah, that's explicable. To lose Sterling the following season, yeah, you then start to think, well, maybe Liverpool are just a, a selling club. Maybe maybe they're not quite big enough. Maybe they never will break into the top four. They never will become a a regular force again. And then other players might start thinking, well, do I really want to stay here? Or are there other places where I'd be I'd be more secure in getting Champions League football? Where where I get more money? So. I, I can see why um, more you know, players who are settled at Liverpool would would resent that destabilisation process, and I can see why players who maybe are just starting to wonder, well, do I want to stay here? Why they're watching the Sterling situation very carefully and, and maybe plotting their own move based on that. You, you make that point though about you know Suarez once he's been Spain, and you can see clearly something like that happening you know, with other players who have lost. You know, Javi Mascherano went to Barcelona, Xabi Alonso. Went to Real Madrid, and I think there's maybe an acceptance in English football. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo obviously went to Real Madrid from uh, a very successful Manchester United. That um, sometimes, uh, you know, if you've got, you know, if you've got a, a superstar who's who's grown up a Spanish speaker or Portuguese speaker, you really only have that guy on loan until uh, until maybe if, if Barcelona or Real Madrid want him, he'll probably want to go there. With Sterling, though, he he is from. Uh, from you know Jamaica or from London via Jamaica, or, or rather Jamaica via London, I should say. Um, culturally, he might as well be Javier Mascherano. He wants to he wants to be back in London. If you look at if you look at Sterling's you know Instagram, every time he arrives back in London, he puts up a photo saying, "Oh, I'm back in London, baby." You know, he loves it. He, it's his, it's it's what he considers his hometown. You know, he wants to be there. I don't see how that's really that different from Luis Suarez wanting to be in his spiritual home or the home of his wife's family, whatever you want to call it, uh, in Barcelona? Well, it's different to the extent that uh, there's a language issue uh, and also that Sterling, I don't know exactly where he lives, but is presumably only about two and a half hours away from London rather than having to go to an airport and get on a plane and, and, and all that hassle. So I, you know, I, I, I accept that, yeah, he, he may feel more at home in London, but I think it's a much... I think that the, the lure of Madrid or Barcelona to a, to a Spanish speaker is, is far greater. And I also, I mean, when, when Sterling was growing up, who did he dream of playing for? I mean, uh, you, know, you can imagine Suarez growing up and... and well, England, yeah. by the looks of it, I mean, he, he's got a t- big tattoo of Wembley. You know, this is his tattoo. He's got a little kid holding the ball, looking up at Wembley, which is just near where he grew up, I think. Yeah, but I mean, which club does he dream of playing for? You can, you can see how, yeah, I'd suggest the most... The vast majority of Uruguayan or Argentinian players, when they're growing up, they you know they, their career path is is mapped out in their heads that they they play for perhaps a small Uruguayan or Argentinian team, then they move to Boca or, or River, and then they move to ideally 
Real Madrid or Barcelona, and and that is a is a familiar path. Uh, I mean, I've got no idea who Sterling supported as a as a kid. I mean, I obviously joined QPR was his was his first club. But I mean, if he if he grew up dreaming of playing for Arsenal, and that was always his dream to play for Arsenal at Wembley in finals, then maybe maybe that holds true. But I, I suspect that, that that path is not as clear as it is for, for Uruguay and Argentinian. Well, Jonathan, Tim Carew wasn't born in Newcastle, but he says, I majority have been here 10 years and I'm going home with a lot of pain in my heart. To, those, to see those travelling fans going back to Newcastle without a win again, it hurts me as much as it hurts them. Unfortunately, some of the fans seem to think it didn't hurt him enough. What did you make of his sportsman-like exchange with Jermaine Defoe at halftime? Um, it's, it's difficult because I... I, I quite like that I, I, th- I think that professionals should be able to appreciate a moment of brilliance and you know you you go down the tunnel a minute after conceding that goal and you happen to, to be or maybe even you wait for the, the guys just put the ball past you and you sort of shake his hand and say well, that was brilliant well done mate I, I don't have a problem with that at the same time I can see why Newcastle fans who'd watch their team produce an absolutely hideous first half I mean the first half of John Carver said he was embarrassed to be part of If it was against anyone else they probably wouldn't have had that big an issue I guess it's just that it was the the derby and you're supposed to uh, there seems to be an idea and Jamie Carragher verbalised this that you you should be very solemn around these derbies and play the match and and win the match and then shake hands but don't smile even after the game uh, which I I think is nonsense to be honest Well, I mean that clearly heightens the the, the feeling but I mean personally I, I I've got absolutely no problem with her. I, I think it's completely possible to be fully committed yeah. without hating the people you're playing against. And I, I, I just think all sport would be far better if people were able to... In the same way, you know, a, a batsman who, who's beaten by a great delivery can nod at the bowler and sort of congratulate the bowler on, yeah, yeah, that was a great ball. Why shouldn't the goalkeeper say, yeah, that was a great shot? I mean, it wasn't even on the pitch, it was in the tunnel. So he's just unfortunate that it's caught. Well, I suppose he probably should have known it was going to be caught on camera, but... Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think. I think there's other players whose commitment was far more questionable in that game than, than Tim Quills. Jonathan, brilliant as always. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks. Interesting, Jonathan's take on the um, on Raheem Sterling wa- walking off on its own. I mean, that could be reading a bit too much into a very small moment. But Liverpool can't really afford for Sterling to become any sort of a toxic presence because they've already got Balotelli in there yeah. who clearly isn't flavoured a month with any of the uh, or certainly with the majority of his teammates it seems um, if they've got two unpopular attacking players in the dressing room then it starts becoming I know not everybody's going to get on with each other at all times anyway but mm. you've got two big names there who are becoming disenfranchised uh, there could be potential difficulties for the rest of the season well I mean I think Balotelli's probably going to be gone they'll, they'll get rid of him I don't think anyone's too concerned about that and I don't know to what extent he really affects the mood Sterling on the other hand is a, has been a key player for them and, and one I assume they, they had been counting on for um, a couple of seasons to come at least um, if he's to leave now it's very bad from their point of view because it's I mean it's not as though they, they, this has been a consistent pattern with them you know they've consistently lost big players you know McManaman Owen um, you know Torres, Suarez, Alonso, Mascherano. You know this is this has continually happened, <clears throat> um, but he would be the youngest, I think, to go, and the only one who hadn't really. They would probably feel as though, well, this guy hasn't really given us a significant piece of his career yet. All those others did. Um, uh, it would be a difficult one to swallow for him to leave at that age. The fact is, I think they've just got to 
if if they want to keep him, they're just going to have to pay him a huge amount of money. That's the way it is. I mean, Barcelona give Lionel Messi pay rise every year, every six months. I'm not. T- I'm not saying that <laughs> Raheem Sterling is Lionel Messi, but maybe in terms of his of his importance to Liverpool, maybe he maybe he does have that kind of standing. As far in you know in their less elevated sort of setup. Uh, maybe, but Liverpool could be thinking about it going, well, we're not 100% certain he, he is going to be as important as, say, Leo Messi within Barcelona. It's not as though there's a 100% certainty about Raheem Sterling. Mm. I mean, he's, he's, oh, he's, definitely, he's almost definitely going to be a good player, mm. but there's, there's no guarantees he's going to be the main man for them for the next no. five, ten years. He's as good a bet as anyone else in that squad, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, if you look at him, you compare him to other players... You know, the same sort of age. I mean, he scored more goals, for instance, than Ronaldo had managed to score when he was his age in a, in a comparable number of games. Um, he has showed outstanding uh, potential. You might say, well, it's only potential, you know, but the fact is, given that the sum's coming in, the money that the club is making has become so inflated, and especially recently, um, it's, not, it's natural the players are going to want their share of it. So if they do want him, they're just going to have to accept this is what... Uh, this is what happens. This is what it costs to keep a player that everybody else wants. A notable result from Spain. Real Madrid 9, Granada 1. That included five goals for Cristiano Ronaldo. Dermot Cargan was there. Dermot, what's the atmosphere like when something like this happens? Are the crowds celebrating or by the end are people just feeling a little bit sorry for Granada? Uh, it was a pretty strange atmosphere all around yesterday at the Bernabeu because for the first 25 minutes or so, the crowd were grumbling a bit. They're still getting over Madrid's recent poor form and including Ronaldo in that for a few groans at times when he gave the ball away. Then they were really happy when he started banging in goals left, right and centre, that hat-trick in, in three minutes. And no, they don't. Bernabeu doesn't really feel sorry for people when they're getting hammered. They just want them to go for more and more and more. Even the referee was getting whistled when he, he didn't give Madrid a free. Even when they're 8-0 up in the game, he's, they still get on the back of the ref if the decision doesn't go their way. And Ronaldo himself was clearly eager for more goals himself. You could see him... You know, Granada's Diego Mainz put through his own net at, at one stage while Ronaldo was waiting to tap in behind him. And Ronaldo's celebration was a little bit half-hearted for the goal, as you could see he was hoping to, to have tapped it in himself. Well, half-hearted is better than some of his non-celebrations <laughs> when his teammates score. <laughs> he tends to look genuinely angry. But this is very good for Ronaldo's stats. It's the first time he scored five in a game. Even though he has, by his own standards, not been great recently, he's closing in on 50 goals now for the season. Yeah, it's brilliant for his stats. He's up to 36 in La Liga already and he's gone ahead of Messi because everybody was talking about how Messi had caught up with him incredibly because Messi was about 15 behind over Christmas and then Messi's spurt brought him ahead of Ronaldo a couple of weeks ago but now Ronaldo's gone back four goals ahead of Messi and it is brilliant for his individual stats. That's It's hard to know because Granada were so bad yesterday. You know, they've, they're down in relegation trouble and they've got two big games coming up this week. There's midweek games in the Liga, so they were kind of, they rested some players and they weren't too focused on, they kind of gave up, I think, on the Bernabeu even before the game. So it was, it was good for him to pad out his numbers. Whether it means he's back at his best or anything, I, I guess we'll have to, to say. He definitely took his goals really well. You know, there's some really smart finishes. Showed how he has become such a, a penalty box player. You know, four of the five goals were, were close range, first time finishes, either headers or, or with his right foot. And he's brilliant at that. If you give him chances close to goal, then he'll put them away and, and he loved it even the fifth goal you could see him celebrating a lot as he scored it he, he definitely enjoyed it himself yesterday yeah I mean Garrett Bale um, managed to score the first goal with I thought a slightly nervous slightly awkward finish after he'd gone around the goalkeeper he sort of took maybe one more touch than you might expect a player to need from that position uh, but he did manage to stick it away um, I suppose even Ronaldo can be happy with a game in which he had scores Bale by 5-1 to one. but uh, you know, do you get the impression he's 
he's winning people over, or is, or is this guy just on a on a, in a downward spiral that can't really can't really be broken at this stage? Are they are they essentially looking at Madrid to move him back to the Premier League and spend the money elsewhere? I don't know. It is going to be really interesting to see what happens with Bale because especially now when James Rodriguez is back fit and he played really well yesterday and Ancelotti um, bigged him up after the game or said that they'd missed him while he was away. Isco is like the... He's the, the golden child of the Spanish media, the local fans and the pundits. They love him because he's Spanish. He, he's a good player as well and, and he's homegrown so they, or at least he, he's come through a Spanish system so they like him. Bale's a bit of the odd man out then. If, if a lot of the fans and pundits were picking the team it'd probably be Bale who, who'd miss out in that case. But Ancelotti always picks him, always plays him. Going to have to see what happens at the end of the season. You get the feeling with Bale that he's, you know, when he scored a couple of weeks ago, his celebration was very animated against the the crowd or against the pundits. Or he says he doesn't listen to the criticism, but it seemed to have got to him. Ronaldo's getting on to 30 as well. There's talk that... um, of how long Madrid would hang on to him, whether they'd want to, if they're going to be able to cash in on him at some stage and he's got a bumper contract. And Florentino Perez, you know, the guys, if you read the media and you look through and kind of try and read the signs in the media, some of the reporters close to Perez were saying recently that, you know, Bale is still there and he's a lot younger. And if Ronaldo wasn't there, maybe Bale would have more chance to score. So there's a decision to be made there. If United or somebody came in with a hundred million bid or something for Bale, maybe Bale himself would want to go home. But it, it's still kind of all to, to play for at this stage. It's ridiculous, though, really, to to consider that um, you know they might be looking at Cristiano Ronaldo and thinking, okay, are we going to cash in? They're not going to be able to cash in on Ronaldo. I mean, nobody's presumably going to pay the kind of money that would make it worth selling him at this stage. And it's not as though his form has, well, has Man, really faltered. Man United, maybe they seem to fi- be finding money from a lot of places. Well, he, he's another five, four and a half years or four years, I think, on his contract. Add about 50 million euros if you add in the taxes and everything that it costs Madrid to have him at the club. So that's a, a lot of money they have sunk into Ronaldo. Doesn't he make them more money than he costs them, surely? I mean, he's, this, he's the biggest, he's maybe the biggest star in, in world football. Is it, not, is it not Real Madrid's exact philosophy to have such a player on the books? I mean, Gareth Bale, you know, whatever about the amazing uh, football that he's played at times, is, is not in the same league as Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of his... Uh, you know, commercials, and not in terms of his, his footballing uh, status, his achievements on the on the field, nor his the marketability that Real Madrid so prized. They're just you can't compare them. Yeah, I definitely say that Bale, from a commercial point of view, has maybe been more of a disappointment than from a, a playing point of view because he has scored a lot of big goals in important times, but he hasn't uh, kind of exploded as that big global star that that maybe they thought they would. Perez and Madrid and the Spanish clubs, they like to have an English player, whether it's for the English-speaking media, the English-speaking world, because it attracts sponsors and attention from there, and they thought getting in bail might help them with that. Maybe that hasn't worked out as well as, as they expected, yeah. All right, Dermot, great stuff. We'll leave it there. Thanks, man. Cheers. Thanks, man. That's something that we touched on a, a few weeks back, actually. The, <laughs> the fact that maybe not everybody in Madrid, you certainly feel, is 100% sure about the geographical and political differences between being English and being Welsh. They mightn't have understood that Gareth Bale isn't actually English when we sign him, even though when they sign him, even though he, he does speak English. Manchester United, Ken, buoyed by their upcoming purchase of Mats Hummels yeah. to cash in or to allow Real Madrid to cash in on Cristiano Ronaldo, return him. Because the same argument you made commercially for Real to keep him, which they will do anyway, I'm sure, could be made for another club to come in hmm. and actually just spend $150 million or whatever it costs. About. Yeah, I mean, he would be, I'm sure Manchester United would would sign him if they could, but I just don't think. You never know. You never know with these things. I mean, it would it would definitely be a 
commercially driven deal because you know the idea of Cristiano Ronaldo is is going to be 31 at his next birthday which okay isn't until next February but to to sign a player like that for a gigantic fee and then the kind of wages that he would get now Ronaldo is, does I think guarantee you at least two good seasons two good seasons for Ronaldo that's <laughs> that's you know uh, it's a pretty you're talking about you know the current reigning world player of the year. At the same time, it's not a norm. It's not the kind of deal you normally make. It's like, well, what if Ronaldo gets injured? He is just made of meat. Ultimately, like everybody else, he might get injured. Suddenly, we're uh, we've wasted uh, quite a lot of money. Um, on the other hand, they are a Nike club, aren't they? Are they Nike? No, they're going back to Adidas. Mm. Um, Manchester United are going back to Adidas. So. I don't know. Maybe that uh, maybe that just puts a spanner in the works. Ronaldo. I don't think they're going to sign. No, they're not going to. It's more realistic. They might sign. Theoretically, yeah. Theoretically, he he wouldn't be going to Barcelona. No. But so you're looking at maybe they're the only Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich never would sign him at that rate. Paris Saint Germain quite quite Mm. uh, feasibly would look at it. but you know they've already had their own problems with spending too much money or spending more money than they than they're allowed to. Um, I'd say Man United would be the most realistic destination, but I don't think he's going to be going anywhere. The uh, just to go finish off in the Premier League because we were talking about it being such an exciting weekend, a lot of amazing goals. Unfortunately, I mean, the bear of bad news here that everybody's already aware of, but the rest of this season could end up being a bit, a bit of an anticlimax. The title is almost certainly Chelsea's. Mm. Arsenal, Man United, Man City are in. Even Brendan Rodgers in fifth place there saying, well, we can't get into the Champions League. So the Champions League places are decided. Now, fortunately, the relegation-threatened clubs at the very bottom had good results over the weekend. So that might have livened that up a bit because it was looking increasingly like Burnley, QPR and Leicester could all be relegated with a couple of games of this season still to go. They're now, at least Burnley and QPR have got to within touching distance of a couple of those clubs above them, Villa and Hull and the likes. Mm. We don't really want a situation with four games to go where the relegation teams are decided and the top four teams are decided. It's all about the build-up to Ireland-Scotland now. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really what we're looking at. Well, there is going to be a few Champions League games as well to enliven April, May and indeed early June. <laughs> so, uh, But yeah, the, the Premier League does look... Uh, Sorry to end on such a downer. does look as though it's been wrapped up. But, but here... Yeah? Well done to Jose Mourinho and Chelsea. Because... Sure, it looks as though there, there isn't anything there. I mean, there is still a possibility of a, of a Chelsea collapse. You know, what if Chelsea say, you know lose their next match? Arsenal um, on an absolute rampage at the moment. Manchester United not even that far behind. Mm. I mean, Chelsea are, are ahead with games in hand, which 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 does some, somewhat subtract from the from the sense seven of, points ahead with a game in hand. Yep. Yeah, but you know, I mean, we've seen teams collapse from that position. We saw Manchester United collapse from that. That type of position in, in 2012, you don't associate that with Jose Mourinho teams. But there are at least three. If they were to collapse, there are at least three teams chasing them. So it's not just the case because Man City are nine points behind with the same amount of games played. So if you're being very uh, very optimistic about this, if Chelsea did falter any further, there are at least uh, there. I often when it's just one team chasing, that you're reliant on them to win every single game as well. Whereas in this case, there could be. We're being very optimistic here. I mean, though. but Chelsea still have to play. You know, don't they have to play play against Arsenal? I think they mm-hmm. do. And and then, don't they have uh, a late game against Liverpool, who obviously are, are totally out of it? But then maybe have the opportunity to repay Chelsea for um, 
for the way things are. I mean, so, I mean if you look at the next couple of games, right? Yeah. Uh, Chelsea are away to keep your. Then they're at home to Manchester United. You know, mm-hmm. okay. It's not a question. Man United aren't necessarily the, the main challengers here. Arsenal seem to be. Then it's away to Arsenal. So, you know, it's it's just it's just thinkable that they could lose those two matches. And if they do, then suddenly the whole thing is is awake again. And that Liverpool match is the. Uh, I don't know why I'm looking at the Liverpool match particularly. I mean, they're playing Palace. That maybe that's more than more likely to drop points than that. But you know, given the way that last season finished. Um, that suddenly that match would 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 suddenly become worth watching. So the Premier League season is alive and kicking. That's our conclusion. I wouldn't necessarily just plug plug out the um, life support just yet. I think um, maybe let's let's give it a few more um, you know days. A belated happy Easter to you. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast. We've got our other show out there ready for you. It's Leinster uh, chat about Leinster scraping through against Bath in the Champions Cup quarter-final, and also the rebirth of Gaelic football. It turns out it may not have been dead after all. It was just, just, it was just resting for a week, and, and now it's back. Thanks very much for listening to this one again. Cheers, Ken. Cheers, Owen. And we'll chat to you soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.